The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. From this Sunday leading all the way up to our Easter celebration for the next four weeks, we're going to be doing a bit of this Lent series that uh, I've entitled uh, Glory. Okay? And it's basically looking at this whole biblical teaching on heaven and the afterlife um, according to what Scripture has to say about it. Um, and the reason why I entitled this series Glory is uh, because... Reflecting on the future that Christians have awaiting them, uh, Paul shares these words to the church in his letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verse 18 to 25, and it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Um, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now, there's a lot there in these verses, and I want to sort of unpack a lot of what's being taught here in the weeks to come, but I'm not really going to focus that much on these verses for my message um, today. Why don't we open up with one more word, of prayer as we take a look at the topic today of this heart that is fit for heaven. God, as we embark in this series that will lead us up into the Easter celebration, we pray that our hearts would be open to understanding what your word teaches us about the afterlife, what is to come for us beyond the grave. We pray that through your truth, you would unmask many of the lies that we are living in right now in our lives, uh, that through that truth, we will be set free where we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I rarely ask you guys to do things like this. I know there are some pastors that do it a lot more, but I'm going to invite you to actually do it just a, a bit of a, a, of a little uh, thought experiment right now. If you would just close your eyes for a moment, if you would do that and indulge me, just close your eyes for a moment. And if I were to ask you with your eyes closed, just to picture for a few moments um, what comes to mind when you think of heaven, okay? Um, and just with, keep your eyes closed for a minute and just what are the images that are conjured up in your mind when you think heaven? And what feelings are stirred inside of you at the thought of those images? You can open your eyes. Um, some of you may not want to, <laughs> um, but I'm requesting you to open your eyes. Um, I think the truth is, whether you're in the church or just really not part of the church, um, a lot of us struggle with this image of heaven. And I'm kind of curious to know what you pictured when you closed your eyes. Um, 
I suspect that many of us can't get away from seeing clouds somewhere in the picture, right? Um, and maybe even people floating on those clouds. Um, ever since I was a child, um, I always, whenever I used to try to visualize heaven in my head, I always associated it with this rather unpleasant, foggy, semi-conscious, dreamlike state, you know? It's sort of like awaking from general anesthesia after you had surgery, you know, and you're in the recovery room. I don't know why, but I've always sort of associated heaven like that. Like you're not fully awake. You're not fully there. And so I think for many people, even for Christians, uh, we don't think of heaven as an actual physical place that you can touch and smell and see. Instead, for many of us, we picture heaven as some kind of a, a spiritual realm where we are just disembodied souls floating around in the ether or maybe riding on clouds and truthfully without much to do. I think many of us have this picture of an eternity spent like that as being rather dull and boring. Uh, there's a famous Far Side comic where he has a guy sitting on a cloud and he says, in the little caption bubble, it says, uh, I should have brought a magazine. <laughs> the thought of just sitting on this cloud forever. It, for many of us, when we think of heaven, nothing feels real about that world. Uh, and as we're going to see in the weeks to come, that could not be farther from the truth of what the Bible actually teaches us about heaven. Um, in fact, that view of heaven that's been so instilled in our heads here in the Western world uh, has actually a lot more to do with ancient Greek philosophy uh, than it does with the Bible. Uh, or maybe even Hollywood and all the ways that Hollywood portrays heaven to us. Um, the thought of heaven ought to be one of the great motivators for the Christian life. But if that is actually our view of heaven, how motivational is it in all honesty? I, I think the dirty secret that many of us hold that we don't really want to talk about is that for even many of us in the church, we're not actually looking all that much forward to heaven. It's not some place that we long to be long to get to. In fact, I think if some of us are really honest, we really wonder if heaven is even going to be better than earth or if it's going to be almost a step in the wrong direction. Um, I've been reading quite a few books in this last month on heaven in preparation for the series. And what I found as a commonality in almost all these books is that each one of these authors is really sounding an alarm to the church to say that the way that we understand heaven in the church is at so many levels so messed up, so wrong, that some pretty major corrections are needed for us to re-envision what our future really is looking like according to Scripture. I'll be honest too, even some of my own personal views have been challenged about the nature of heaven and the afterlife based on my study this last month. And so my hope is that in these next few weeks as we unpack one message after another, that all of us are going to be challenged to some of the most basic assumptions that we hold about heaven.
And I'll just give you a little preview here. One of the things I want to challenge you, actually, is that this whole idea of dying and going to heaven, that's not vocabulary that the Bible actually uses. And I know some of you are going, what do you mean? We don't die and go to heaven. What are you talking about? And I'm going to challenge you that what the Bible actually talks about more is not us dying and going to heaven as much as heaven coming down here to earth. And I think that's actually a radically different view of the future that awaits us. Um, My hope is also that this biblical view of heaven is going to show us um, that it's something that we all ought to genuinely long for, something that motivates us through the struggles and the sufferings of this life. Like what Paul said to the Philippians in chapter 1, 21 to 24, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. I don't think this is a sentiment shared by even many in the church today. In fact, when you look at this, Paul kind of sounds in our modern sensibilities as a crazy guy. This is a guy with a death wish. He's actually genuinely wrestling with the struggle that he would rather die and be with God in heaven than to be here on the earth. But he sees remaining on earth as a necessity to be a blessing to the church. Um, as I'm saying all this, you may be sort of wondering, um, who cares about all this? Who cares how accurate a picture of heaven I have? I mean, aren't we all going to find out the truth anyway when we die? Um, and I would argue, actually, it matters a lot. We should do our best to understand what happens the moment we die. Because our view of the afterlife will have a profound impact on how we live our lives in the present. It makes all the difference in the world, I would argue, the choices you make in this present life, what you believe your future destiny is. In other words, it's not just to satisfy our curiosity about the afterlife, but it really ought to determine the entire destiny of our lives. Let me see if I could illustrate it like this. I'll be very honest and make a confession before you is that throughout almost my entire childhood, I actually struggled with going to school. I loved learning, but I hated the classroom experience. And I'm sorry any of you teachers out here, no person, don't take it personally, all right? It's really about me, not about my teachers. But the truth is that most of the time, I was bored out of my mind when I went to school. I struggled with paying attention all the time in class and following the teacher's instructions. And almost every single report card, the comments were always the same. Steve has great potential. (laughs) (laughs) Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) But the implication was I wasn't living up to that potential. And so by the time that I reached third grade, uh, the teachers didn't know what to do with me. And so what had actually happened was they pulled me out of class for English and math. And what they did was they put me in this corner of the room by myself and they had me read these difficult novels. And then I had to answer these reading comprehension questions on these index cards. I still remember this today. It felt like punishment every time, you know? And then for math, 
the teacher just basically handed me this thick math workbook and said, do it. <laughs> and I, in essence, through several years of my primary school, was teaching myself mathematics. It's crazy when you think about it. And the thing that I was struggling with all the time was, what did it matter what kind of marks that I got on this silly report card? And how I did on these standardized tests that we were forced to take every year. I mean, what was the point of it all? And the truth is, that negative view of school lasted pretty much through a good chunk of college, okay? Um, But when I started medical school, my attitude totally changed. Because for the first time in my life, it was clear to me how the things that I was learning in the classroom were relating to my competency as a future doctor. In other words, as I was studying the facets of disease and the human body, I began to make the strong connection, a clear connection between the classroom and my future. I realized that failure to understand these concepts could be a matter of life and death to the patients that are under my care. So I better learn this stuff and learn it well. In other words, for the first time in my life, my academic life, in my academic life, I was motivated to study and to study hard. Let me actually show you to you from sort of a more of a negative example. Back in 2007, here in the Chicagoland area, things were a bit scandalized when a local law firm put up this risque billboards all over the Chicagoland area of a shirtless man and a woman in lingerie with these poignant words, life's short, get a divorce. <laughs> okay? I don't know, did any of you see these billboards when they were up in Chicago? They were only up for a few weeks because they were torn down, <laughs> actually. The message behind the message was clear. There's nothing after the grave. So don't let this one life pass you by. Get everything you want out of life before you die. And if that means get out of your unhappy marriage, get out of it fast and find a new soulmate. It's staggering to think about the kind of choices that we're likely to make in life if this is our life philosophy, if this is what we believe about our future. Well, in today's message, I want to address one of the objections that rises to the top for many people when we think about heaven. To many people, heaven seems like an exclusive club that everyone is desperately trying to get into, but few make it in. It's like God is a divine bouncer. And everyone is trying to get into this club because it's, what's happening, it's where the action is, but he's very stingy. He only lets a few people in. And the problem with this is this, is that if heaven is going to be such a great place, why doesn't God let more people in? Frankly, why doesn't he let everybody in? What I would argue is this, the problem with this view of heaven is that it assumes that everybody wants to be in heaven. 
And the truth is this, is if you view heaven as a, some kind of a cosmic Disney world in which you have superpowers like teleportation or flight or whatever, or if heaven is that place where everyone gets their own mansion and every wish is granted, well then, I think the logic is obvious. Who wouldn't want to be there? Who would reject heaven? I think the Bible teaches that heaven will, in fact, be an amazing place filled with beauty and wonder and joy. But the most important fact about heaven, as the Bible teaches it, is that it is a place where we will experience the presence of God forever. Revelation chapter 21, verse 2 to 4, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. In verses 22 to 23 of Revelation 21, it says, I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. In other words, what makes heaven heaven by definition is that it is the place where God dwells among his people. And the truth is this, that because of our sinful nature, we don't automatically see that as a good thing. To understand the struggle more fully, we have to go back to the beginning of the story. The story of humanity begins in a garden with the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, who were created to live under God's loving rule. But what happens so shortly after that is that they distrust God and they reject his leadership over their lives. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 to 10 says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, to f- good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for them. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And so with this Act of rebellion, sin and death would enter our world. And along with that sin and death would come shame and fear. And what the Bible tells us is that Adam and Eve's story is actually our story. Because like them, our natural bent is to turn our backs on God and to reject Him. We'd rather, in other words, rule over ourselves than to submit to God's leadership over us. Romans 8 verse 7 to 8 says, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. In other words, what Paul is saying to the Romans is there's just something twisted in the human heart that refuses God, that says, I don't need God in my life. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned 
to our own way. That's describing every single one of us. Alexander Solzhenitsyn says this, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. In other words, the Bible, as the Bible lays it out, the problem of evil is not something external to us, somewhere out there about all the bad people in this world that God needs to deal with. What the Bible says is that the problem of evil resides right here in our own hearts. Every single one of us in this struggle to submit to God and give Him the proper leadership and authority that He is due. That's why in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, it says, speaking about Mary and Jesus' birth, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from what? From their sins. In other words, Jesus is coming to save us from ourselves, not from the evil that is out there, but the problem of our own sinful hearts. Years later, as an adult, Jesus announced his ministry with these words in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's interesting that Jesus introduced his ministry on earth with these words, The kingdom of God is at hand. What he is saying is this, is that, I have come to right the wrong of an entire race of humanity that has turned away from God. And I'm going to bring you back to God and reconcile this broken relationship between you and God. And the way that that's going to happen, he's describing it, is in terms of this concept of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is, in essence, the place where God rules as king. And so what Jesus says is, I will be that king for you. You know, often when we think about Jesus dying on a cross, we think about the fact that by dying on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin, and through that we have forgiveness. And that is absolutely true. But the cross is so much more than just forgiveness of sin. What the cross represents is that it opens the door for us to come back to God and bring our lives under his rightful leadership submitting to God's authority so that God would once again rule over our lives. And the term that Jesus uses to describe that new life that he provides is eternal life. Eternal life. When we think of eternal life, we usually think of it in terms of duration, as going on forever. But when the Bible uses eternal life, it's talking more about the quality of the life. And it says that when you are saved, that eternal life begins immediately. Not after you die. John chapter 5, verse 24. Very truly I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. John chapter 6, verse 40 says, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. John 6, verse 47 to 48. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Every one of these examples that I showed you of talking about having eternal life is spoken in the present tense. 
It is something that we possess right now when we believe in Jesus. In other words, eternal life begins not when we get to heaven, but it begins the moment we believe. And that is speaking about the kind of life that Jesus is inviting us into. Romans chapter 14, verse 17 describes this eternal life. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul is talking in this context of Christians quibbling with one another, fighting over these issues about the proper way to do these religious ceremonies. And in a way, what Paul is saying is, you guys are thinking in this old way of thinking. And what he is saying basically is, when you have come into this kingdom of God, What it is is about a life of joy and freedom and the power of God at work in your life through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's righteousness and peace and joy, not following these dead religious ceremonies day after day. John chapter 10, verse 10 puts it like this. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I think the story of Zacchaeus illustrates powerfully what this eternal life looks like. Here was a man that was a tax collector. In fact, we're told he's a chief tax collector, and his entire life is consumed by greed and the love of money. And suddenly he meets Jesus, and his life is never the same. And in Luke chapter 19, verse 8 to 10, it says, But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Once his entire life was controlled by the love of money, but Jesus set him free from that, so that money no longer held the power over his heart, That it once did. And so he says, I will give half my wealth to the poor, and whoever I have cheated, I will pay back four times what I owe them. This is not about rules and regulations and about, quote, doing the right thing. It is about a soul that has been set free by the power of God to understand the whole purpose for which we were created, which was to live in a world that is filled with the love of God and the power that that love gives to us into every relationship that we possess in this life. And what I want to say to you is this. You may have grown up your entire life in the church and not know this life. Because the truth is, for some of us, we may still be trapped in the anger or the jealousy or the self-righteousness of our old life. We may still be stuck in this performance mode of constantly wondering about what I have to do to prove my worth to God. Some of you may in truth be stewing in resentment or self-pity at some past wrong done against you, and you just can't get over it. And behind that smile is a dark and brooding heart filled with hatred toward others. What the Bible says is this. Heaven is not something for the next life when we die. It begins in this life with the work that Christ does today. And so the longing for heaven arises when we taste 
and see that the Lord is good. And as God begins to do that transforming work in our hearts, what we long for is heaven, because in heaven that process will be made perfect, where we will be with God forever. And so if we don't know the goodness of God in this life, what possible longing would we have for heaven in the next? The idea of being together with God forever, why would that appeal to us? if we haven't tasted in this life that God is good. You know, to describe heaven as an exclusive club with God as the divine bouncer who only lets people in that he wants isn't an accurate portrayal of the full story that the Bible teaches. If we see heaven this way, our mindset is likely to be, what are the hoops that I have to go through? that I have to jump through in order to get into heaven because that's just the way God set up the game. You just got to learn the rules, you know? I don't know, maybe we're going to get up there and, you know, as this common mythology, St. Peter is supposed to be at the pearly gates and apparently he's going to quiz us and so you better know your Bible (laughs) so you pass that theology exam. I don't know. What are the hoops that I have to go through to get into heaven? And let me just make sure I got that straight in my life. John Orper compares that kind of view of heaven with the mentality that frequent flyers have about their mileage. (laughs) And I know there are some people here in this room even who travel a lot, and you know how to work the system, right? In order to maintain your elite status with your airline. This is what John Orper says. Let's say I acquire elite status in an airline's frequent flyer program, and I ask, what's the bare minimum I have to do to maintain my status? This is an altogether proper question because there is no connection between the perks I desire and the person I am becoming. Anyone would want better seats, nicer food, linen napkins, red carpets. It's an objective, forensic, legal status. The airline will even keep track of my miles to make sure I do satisfy the minimum requirements. He's saying, if it's about a frequent flyer program, then that all is, that's all that matters is, do I meet the minimum requirements to keep gold status or whatever, you know? But this mentality would be disastrous if we applied it to our marriages, wouldn't it? Again, Orberg writes, but imagine if I had said to Nancy, which was his wife, on our wedding day, I want to know, what's the absolute least I can do to stay married to you? What's the lowest level of commitment, the fewest affirmations, the smallest promises, the highest level of ignorance permissible? What are the minimum requirements for maintaining my husband's status? That would be disaster, wouldn't it? I don't think you would make it off the altar. And what the Bible is saying is that our relationship with God much more closely resembles marriage than it does a frequent flyer program. That mindset does not work in marriage and it doesn't work in our relationship with God. Orberg continues, so becoming the kind of person who wants heaven, uninterrupted life with God is a problem Because I often want freedom to do things I don't want God to see. Real heaven means life where my every thought, deed, and word lie ceaselessly open to God for eternity. 
Our issue with heaven is not so much about getting in. It's about becoming the kind of person for whom heaven would be an appropriate and welcome setting. If I don't want the unceasing presence of God in my life now, how could I truly want an eternity in the ceaseless presence of God? where the possibility of any sinful action or thought, no matter how desirable, is forever cut off. In other words, are we in this life becoming the kind of people that would actually long for heaven, for an eternity with God like that? In his fictional work, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis tells the story about this tour bus packed with visitors who travel from hell to the outskirts of heaven. Interestingly, Lewis depicts hell as a dark and gloomy city that is endlessly expanding its boundaries as its citizens try to get as far away from each other as possible. In other words, every time anyone has a conflict with one another, their immediate reaction is to build a house further away from their neighbors. And so heaven is pictured as this sprawling, ever-growing city filled with discontent, isolated people who hate everyone else. But on arrival, these citizens of hell discover heaven to be a place of unimaginable and aching beauty. But there's another interesting observation when they get to heaven. It is that they look at themselves And they realize that they look like ghosts. They think that they've become ghosts. And what they actually come to discover is that they haven't actually turned into ghosts. They look just like they did on earth. But heaven is a place of so much greater substance than earth that compared to that reality of heaven, they all look just like ghosts, like shadows. And so what happens is when they actually step on the grass in heaven, uh, their feet hurt because the grass feels like rocks. Uh, like sharp needles under their feet. They are not solid enough yet for heaven. And each of these visitors on this tour bus is given an invitation to stay in heaven if they want. And it's sort of hard to imagine how anybody would turn down the offer of heaven. But as the story unfolds, sadly, one by one, every one of them rejects the offer and returns to the bus. Each of them with their own reason for why they would rather be in hell than stay in heaven. One man came to heaven with one agenda, which was to demand his rights. And when he gets there, he is met by a friend who is already in heaven, and he's flabbergasted because he swears that he was a better man than this guy was on earth. And he is absolutely offended that he's been struggling in hell while this guy is in heaven and received forgiveness from God. And his friend is like, this forgiveness is available to all of you. All you have to do is repent and receive the salvation God offers, and he can't do it. He is absolutely offended at, in his words, the thought of sniveling for mercy in order to be able to stay in heaven. And so he returns to the bus. Another man returns to the bus refusing to believe that the promise that he is allowed to stay is real because he is a cynic. He is jaded from all of the unfulfilled and unkept promises that he experienced on earth. 
He now no longer trusts anybody, not even God. And so he refuses to believe that this invitation to heaven is real. One woman hides among the bushes and refuses to come out because when she realizes that everyone, she's transparent, that everyone can see right through her, she's mortified and she is just frozen in shame. And her friend comes to her and tries to coax her out of the bushes and says, the longer you're here, the more solid you become. And the truth is, the longer you're here with every moment you're in heaven, the less you actually care what other people think about you, the less self-absorbed you are. So she says, just come on out. Everything is going to be okay. But she is so trapped in her shame that she refuses to come out from hiding. One of the last encounters is a woman who comes out expecting to be greeted by her son, but is actually greeted in heaven by her brother. And it turns out as they're conversing with one another, we discover that her son actually died on earth when he was still a young boy. And the conversation between her and her brother also reveals that hers was a toxic, possessive kind of love that choked the life out of everybody she attempted to love. And so her brother invites her to discover what true love is like, a true, selfless, generous, giving love that gives life to people rather than suffocates them. Because he says, you're going to need to know this love before you could stay in this country. And before you're even ready to meet your son, who by implications is not ready to meet her yet. But instead of accepting that invitation to discover God's love, she is filled with a rage and indignation of being denied immediate access to her son. And there's this interesting conversation that goes back and forth between her and her brother. She says, oh, of course I'm wrong. Everything I say or do is wrong, according to you. But of course, said the spirit, which is her brother, shining with love and mirth so that my eyes were dazzled. That's what we all find when we reach this country. We've all been wrong. That's the great joke. There's no need to go on pretending one was right. After that, we begin living. How dare you laugh about it? Give me my boy. Do you hear? I don't care about all your rules and regulations. I don't believe in a God who keeps mothers and sons apart. I believe in a God of love. No one has a right to come between me and my son, not even God. Tell him that to his face. I want my boy, and I mean to have him. He is mine. Do you understand? Mine, mine, mine forever and ever. With this demand unmet, she too returns to the bus and returns to hell. I'll be honest with you. I just read through The Great Divorce this last week, and I've read this book about three times before. And there was something always about this book that's, that bothered me. It was this fundamental premise that Lewis lays out that a group of people can go from hell and then suddenly go to heaven now if they want it. And I said, is that really what the Bible teaches? But I don't think that's what Lewis was trying to say. I think what Lewis was actually trying to say in the story, The Great Divorce, is this. The choices that we make right now in this life are determining our destinies between heaven and hell. 
And with every day and every choice you make in this life, you're either taking a step closer to hell or a step closer to heaven. Dallas Willard says this, hell is not an oops or a slip. One does not miss heaven by a hair, but by constant effort to avoid and escape God. Outer darkness is for those who everything said wants it whose entire orientation has slowly and firmly set itself against God and therefore against how the universe actually is. It is for those who are disastrously in error about their own life and their place before God and man. Those are some pretty strong words, but I think there's a lot of truth in them, is that the fundamental choice about heaven and hell is not, what are the rules of the game that I need to abide by to make, it, make the cut? It is, have I fundamentally understood what the problem of my life is, the need of my soul? And it is the leadership of God over me that will walk me into an entirely different kind of life that I can't even imagine right now a life of freedom and joy and love and power that can absolutely transform my destiny. And I am going to begin to experience tastes of that now in this life and know it fully and perfectly one day in heaven. Most of you know that Dallas Willard has been such a huge influence of mine. It's rare that too many weeks go by before I use a quote of his. And for those of you who don't know, Dallas Willard was a philosophy professor at USC and is a, was a prolific Christian author. Um, I think he, in fact, is one of the most brilliant minds that I've ever encountered in, in any of my books that I've read. But the truth is, what actually draws me to Dallas Willard uh, more than anything else, is that when I read books by other authors who knew Willard, they all say categorically the same thing. This guy was amazing. He changed my life. One conversation with him transformed everything for me. Dallas Willard died in 2013 after a brief but intense bout, a battle with um, pancreatic cancer. And in those final months of his life, there was this guy, a uh, theologian named Gary Black Jr., who got the rare opportunity to actually come alongside Willard and sort of act as a nurse to him during his recurrent visits to the hospital receiving chemotherapy. And coming out of that experience, Gary Black wrote a book about facing death based on what he witnessed through the life of Dallas Willard. And this is what Gary Black said regarding Willard. If you go to the next slide here. Apologize, normally I put the name of the author with a photo of him, but Gary Black's the author, the photo is Dallas Willard, right? So don't get confused there. Death was never a part of God's overarching plan for humanity. And when it shows its bony face, death's finality and mystery can sneak up on us in unsuspecting and terrifying ways. 
but not for Dallas. Mixed with the tears of loss, there was an unmistakable gleam of anticipation in his eyes as well. I can only describe it as a childlike excitement. And despite the pain and weakness weakness of the disease and the temporary loss of connection to his loved ones, his expectant joy was unquenchable. He knew he was shortly to experience what he had long dreamed of and hoped for. He was soon to come face to face with his dearly beloved Lord and friend, Jesus. That reality carried with it a power that 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 was sustaining us both, allowing us to rise just above all other cares and concerns of this world. I learned that day like never before how highly contagious knowledge and faith can be, as can be the joy and peace they produce. Even though I knew, perhaps even expected this joy to be a natural product of Dallas's intimate relationship with Christ, it was an immeasurable gift to witness firsthand the effects of his trusting faith in action. I watched him stand at the precipice of the greatest of unknowns, what some call the void, where knowledge fades and we all are susceptible to the dread of a cold, empty, dark, and solitary nothingness. But his vast experience of God's goodness, attained throughout the many years he walked with Jesus, dug a reservoir of truth that swallowed such fears, engulfed them, and transcended them, while never needing to deny their presence or potential. His knowledge of God's loving care produced a joy strong enough to cast dread as far from his heart and mind as the east is from the west. This is the way that Dallas Willard faced his death. What Gary Black says is that the final words that he were heard murmuring from Willard as he faded into death was thank you, thank you, thank you. He was just thanking God for the life that he knew. Let's pray. We're about to come here to the Lord's table and take communion, but before we do that, we'd offer you just a a moment, opportunity to spend some time in prayer. And as you do, could I invite you to reflect on your own life? Um, I think there's many ways that the story of heaven is told. And I think there's a lot of ways that we tell it wrongly. And I think one version of that is that God is a stingy God who in his stinginess uh, has made heaven an exclusive club, trying to keep as many people out as he can and creating all these silly rules, all these hoops that we have to jump through if we have any hope of getting in and making the cut. But the story that the Bible tells is actually rather different. It tells the story of a lost humanity that has turned its back on God and refused his caring love. Said, you know what? I would rather rule in hell than to surrender my rights in heaven. And yet God in his loving mercy sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross in order to mend the relationship that was broken between God and us. And I'm telling you guys this. There are some in this room that despite all of your attempts to be religious, do not know this life. This life of joy and freedom. Some of you are sunken in despair. And all you can see are all the wrongs done against you. All the people that have hurt you. All of the chances that you missed 
the opportunities that were lost. Some of you just stew in this toxic soup of self-righteousness or self-pity. Some of you are just trapped in this bondage of pessimism, of fear, of anger. And Jesus says, I have come that you may know life and know it abundantly. It's not about meeting a certain set of requirements that will get you through the gates of heaven. It's experiencing the reality of heaven in this present life now because of what Christ has done. And through the gift of the Holy Spirit, you can know that freedom. You can know that joy. And I wonder if some of you would have the honesty today to acknowledge that you don't actually know that life because that could be terrifying to you because you've played by all the rules, but maybe in your heart of hearts you know that you don't know that life. Maybe this might be the day where you surrender your heart to God and say, God, I want to know that resurrection life. I want to know that abundant life, that eternal life. We're going to respond in a song of worship as the worship team comes to lead us right now. And then after that, we're going to come to the Lord's table. So can I invite you all just to rise and let's sing this song in response to the message. 